some of you know who I am. Some of you may not know who I am. Uh, it's good to see the bunts. I remember you from many, many years ago, that one time. Um, visitors from New York. Um, New York Yankees fans, that's okay. Uh, the Lord, uh, the Lord's had me kind of on an interesting journey the last ten years or so. Uh, I grew up in this church through my high school, junior high years, uh, back when Roger Blundell was here. Mark was the youth pastor, and he was my mentor. So I praise God for Mark and the way that he used Mark in my life to disciple me, along with Roger and many of you. I, Don Carey has been here through that whole stretch; is a huge part of my life as well. And uh, through the years, the Lord's kind of transitioned me from different ministry to different ministry. I've been a part of a couple different churches. And uh, most recently, the change that he's brought about is the last three and a half years, I've actually been in jail, uh, which is kind of weird. When I, when I mention that to people and they're not familiar with my story, it, it kind of sets them a little aback. Um, but about three and a half years ago, while I was pastoring in a church up in a small town called Lovell, um, which is just outside of Freiburg, for those of you who weren't aware of where it was, because neither was I when I started there, um, I really felt the Lord was impressing on me to to apply to the Cumberland County Jail, which is down in Portland on Congress Street. I can assure you that it was God's plan and not my plan, because it was the last place in the world that A, I would have imagined ever being, and B, would ever have wanted to be. Uh, but after praying through it, I had a neighbor that was part of the Sheriff's Department, and he had mentioned it to me. And he challenged me. He said, you know, I really think, Heath, that you'd be, you'd be good at it. He said, you don't, you don't have to be a, a big physical guy, which, you know, that, that fits my frame, I guess. Um, he said, but you just have to be good with people. He said, a lot of it's just IPC skills, being able to talk to people. And I gave him kind of the pat answer I had given him a couple years before when he had brought it up, that I would pray about it. And that was kind of my way of saying, yeah, no, thank you, but I'll be spiritual about it anyway. Well, the funny thing is, is as I prayed about it, the Lord began to actually impress on my heart that that was exactly what he wanted me to do. So I went through the six-month process of interrogations and all that stuff that you have to go through, lie detector tests to, to get hired, and, and the Lord put me at Cumberland County Jail. I'll be honest with you, whoa, that was a change. Um, I'll be honest with you that I have never worked in a job or a ministry that has scared me more than working at the jail. Um, it's a little nerve-wracking to be up here in front of you this morning. For those of you that have ever done that, you know what that's like, but that's the Lord's way of keeping us humble and relying on Him. But as I was going through my three months of training at the jail, I don't know if I've ever spent more time praying in all my life. Each day I went in, I looked at the people around me that I was training with. There were about 12 of us in the class. And I thought, Lord, what am I doing here? But, the God, but God had given me a very clear directive. And it was only because I knew it's what he wanted me to do that that's what kept me going. When I finally hit the floors after passing all the training that they put you through and the tests that you have to take written and on the floor tests, hands-on stuff, I kind of hit the field, if you will. And my mindset when I first started going there was the Lord was going to use me to make an impact in the jail. 
what I didn't realize was that really for the first year and a half, the Lord was going to use the jail to make an impact on me. For that first year and a half, I, and I still to this day, pray every day going in, but I was genuinely afraid. There are days when you have no idea what you're going to face. You may have 90% of your days where it's calm, as calm as jail can be, when you have 80 inmates walking around you and there's two officers there overseeing them. But there are days when you just don't ever know what you're going to expect, what you're going to run into. And there were two things that, two early lessons that the Lord really taught me as he was changing my heart that first year and a half. I'd, I had opportunities to share Christ with people, which was, again, that was my thought, Lord, you're going to use me as a missionary here. But again, God's thought was, Heath, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change your heart here. Instead of using you to change others, I'm going to use them to change you first. And there were two key things that really struck me that tie into our message this morning as we look at Mark chapter 5. The first lesson was, as I was sitting in training, we had a detective come in and he was showing us all these pictures of people that had committed suicide. He was the guy that they called up at 2 in the morning, or whatever the time of day was, to go out to a house and take pictures of people that had just killed themselves. And part of our training was to see some of those pictures. I won't describe what it's like to see those pictures, but one of the stark things that really hit me was a story he was telling about an individual that lived in a house kind of by himself and had taken his life. But the thing that hit me about it above the others is when he told me where the individual lived, I came to realize that the person actually was just down the road from me. He lived down the hill from where I live, across from the corner store. And that's where this guy decided to take his life. Two minutes walking distance from me. And as he shared a couple other stories, believe it or not, for those of you that live in this area, three or four of the eight or so that he shared were all from this region. He shared one that had happened on out by Raymond's public beach. A guy one night just drove out there with his car, had had an issue with his wife, marital problems, and he decided to take his life in his car. And really, the Lord used that to pull on my heartstrings and to show me that there are people all around us that maybe we know or we don't know, but we pass every day that are struggling and are hurting out there. Maybe you're one of them this morning. Maybe you're here and you, you have a story that, man, we just don't know it because we haven't gotten to know you. The second transformational story that really happened at the jail is I was wrestling with people. And, you know, the, you, have, you have the fear factor on one side that I was wrestling with. And then on the other side, you had just the overwhelming sorrow of seeing broken lives. When you get to know some of these people, you realize that they're not a whole lot different from us. They have some problems, for sure. Drug addictions, abuse, violence issues. But when you start to listen to their stories, you realize that they put on their shoes the same way we do every morning. They go to work each day, and they try to get by as best they can, and they have families, and they have young kids. 
and they have wives that they love, but they're struggling. In the overwhelming, there's just this oppressive feeling at times when you feel the weight of what everybody's going through there. And there was a gentleman there that the Lord really used. He's another brother in Christ. He actually goes to the Wyndham Assembly of God. Um, and one day I was catching up with him, and he said, you know, Heath, he said, the one thing that I want to challenge you while you work here is that each morning when you wake up, I want you to look in the mirror, and I want you to see that you're just a sinner saved by grace. You're a sinner saved by grace. And when you remember that each day, the way you respond to these people that are going to call you things that you've never heard before, they're going to berate you, they might even be physical with you, you're going to realize that they need that same grace that God's given you. Our passage this morning, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, Mark chapter 5, is about a, a gentleman that, that needed grace. And for a lot of us, we're going to look at this passage, and our thought, if we ran into him, is that this guy's a monster. And Jesus looked at him as a man in need of grace. There are people in bondage all around us. And what I want you to, to consider this morning and to realize is that Jesus has given you the key to set them free. There are people in bondage all around us, and Jesus has given us the key to set them free. Let's turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, you're probably familiar with this passage if, if you've spent any time in the Gospels, but it's the, the story of the Gerasene demoniac. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says that they, and they refers to Jesus and his disciples, earlier in chapter 4, at the end of it kind of transitioning, Jesus is on the sea of Galilee with his disciples. And the, the story of how storms raging all around him, Jesus is sleeping in the boat. They scream out to him, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? And he wakes up and he calms the storm. After the calming of the storm, the boat hits the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. If you can kind of mentally picture in your head the layout of that area, you have the Sea of Galilee up top. Jordan River kind of comes down and it connects to the Dead Sea at the bottom. On the left side of the Jordan River, you have Israel. On the right side, you have the Gentile region, if you will. Probably what we would consider modern-day Palestine in a way today. They're on the east side of the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where they come into another encounter with this man that is possessed by demons. It says, They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Now, there are three parallel passages that I just want to bring to your attention that go along with this story. And it's, it's good to compare between the three. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew gives his account of this story. And then in Luke chapter 8, Luke gives his account. There are some minor discrepancies that I want to bring to your attention just because I think it's important. Um, higher criticism would like to disprove God's word is true and they would point to certain things like this. But I want to assure you that A, God's word is always true. And B, if there seems to be a contradiction, I can assure you that there's a way to explain it. That is truth. One of the contradictions is, if you look at the Matthew account in chapter 8, it says that they arrived at the land of the Gadarenes. 
So garrisons, gatherings, tomatoes, tomatoes, what's really the difference? Well, here's, here's the difference. Gersa was probably the small town that they landed in once they got off of the Sea of Galilee. Just, just off the, the, the coast of the Galilee, uh, Gersa is known for kind of being a, a little bit of a hilly section. Um, there's actually modern day archaeology that's proven that there are actually tombs here where this man was hiding out. They would dig out these tombs in the rocks and the hills and they were kind of like these caves that they would bury their people in. And that's where this demoniac is hiding. He's an outcast from society. Nobody wants to be around him and this is where he is. So this, this small little town of Gersa is where Mark and Luke refer to. Now Matthew refers to him as the gatherings and Gadara was actually a larger city just a little bit further southeast of where they are. And it's kind of like if we live in the Wyndham area, right? But it's also known as Greater Portland. Kind of the same idea. Gadara was a much bigger city. In fact, it was part of the region called Decapolis, which we see in chapter 5 of verse 20. It's kind of this overall region. Decapolis means ten cities. Gadara was probably the capital city of this region. So when Matthew refers to it and his passage, really what he's saying is the whole region of the Gadarenes, even though it's a smaller town of Gersa. So they land in the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, verse 2, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and he was gashing himself with stones. Jesus gets out of the boat, and he's confronted by this wild man. This demon-possessed man. There are two, two points of emphasis that I want us to focus on. There are two different perspectives we're going to start with. So today, just to kind of give you an outline, we're going to look at two perspectives, and then we're going to look at two different reactions, just so you know where we're going. The two perspectives I want you to consider as we look at this is, first of all, what's the perspective of this man? Because a lot of times we look at what Jesus did for this man, and we look at it from Jesus' vantage point, but I want you to look at it for a minute from the man's vantage point. How does it describe him? First of all, it says that there was this man with an unclean spirit. He is being ravaged and tormented by demons. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you believe about spiritual warfare, but I can assure you that God's word makes it pretty clear that demons are real. We have to be careful not to go screaming that Satan is behind everything and that everybody's possessed by a demon because sometimes our own flesh is enough and Satan doesn't even need to bother with us. But demons are real. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, says that our battle, in Ephesians 6, 10-12, he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan is alive and well, and demons are very real. And here we have a man that has been tortured by demons. In fact, they kind of have given him this supernatural strength. It goes on to tell us that he had been shackled and chained, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Not only that, but he hides among the dead as an outcast. And to relieve the pain, we have a picture of this guy that sits there naked, if you look at the Luke account. He's not clothed, and he gashes himself with broken pieces of rock. Working in the jail, I've dealt with some people that we refer to as cutters. And a lot of time, cutters aren't cutting themselves because they want to kill themselves. Sometimes they do it because they're looking for positive attention from somebody. Sometimes they do it because the pain that they're wrestling with on the inside needs relief. And the best relief they have is to have a physical pain to take away the internal pain. I don't know if that's where this guy was, but it gives you a picture of what he's going through. What would life have been like if you were this man? Did this guy have children? Did he at one point have a family? He had to have had a mom and a dad somewhere, right? Friends that knew him from the past? People he grew up with? So often I've come to this passage and I've thought about what Jesus did for him, but I never thought about what this man went through. This is a guy that needed Jesus so bad. Jesus didn't have a planned meeting with this man, but God had arranged a meeting for this man to meet Jesus. What was Jesus' perspective? We have this tortured individual. What if it was you that had gotten out of the boat that day? I wonder what the disciples are doing right now. Because you know they're with Jesus. They're not really mentioned here, but it says they got out of the boat. Uh, what if you were Peter or James or John or Philip and you're there with Jesus and this crazy lunatic comes running up to you. He's naked. He smells. He's got dried blood all over him. What would you do? I would run. I would get back in the boat. But it's very interesting that Jesus spoke to the man. He talked to him. Seeing Jesus from a distance, verse 6, the man ran up and he bowed down to Jesus. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
kind of gives us a picture of perhaps how many demons this man was actually in possession of. A legion in that day, a Roman legion, was up to 6,000 soldiers. Usually three to 6,000. This isn't a, a, a small issue. Jesus, excuse me, verse 10, And the man began to implore Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. And there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirit entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away, and they reported in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. There are two reactions that we see from Jesus here with this man, right? The first one is compassion. We expected that, right? We expected Jesus to have compassion, and he has compassion. He didn't run from this man. He reached out to this man. When everything inside of me wants to run sometimes, when I'm around people that make me uncomfortable, I need the grace of Jesus to help me to reach out to them. Jesus saw this man as broken, but he also saw a man that was in need of a Savior. My prayer is that God would help us to see people the way that he sees people. Because I can assure you that three and a half years ago, it was very easy for me to have my safe bubble. I went to church faithfully. I ministered in the church. I had a beautiful wife, beautiful children. And I didn't want anything to touch them. And I wouldn't mind sharing the gospel with people as long as they were safe to share it with. Maybe my co-workers or... Uh, my neighbor, if it wasn't too inconvenient. But the people that were going to radically change my life, that made me uncomfortable, that made me change the way I wanted to live, they were easy to push to the side. I can assure you, you would be amazed at the people around you that you pass every day that I know from jail. I can drive through Portland and I can pick out a dozen people on the side of the street by name. They're the people that hold flags for you, stop signs, project flagging. They're the people that give you coffee in the morning. And maybe that makes you uncomfortable. But what I want you to see is that these are real people with real problems in need of a real Savior. And God puts us in contact with them every day and sometimes we just don't even realize it. We need to pray that God would give us a spirit, His spirit, and a heart to see people the way that He sees them. When Jesus saw this man, He saw him for what He was. He didn't turn a blind eye that this man didn't have an issue. But instead of running, He reached out to him. He gave this man hope where this man had lived in hopelessness and aloneness for years and years. Who's your neighbor, right? Luke chapter 10, isn't that the question? The Good Samaritan? 
Do we love the people that are easy to love and turn our backs on the people that are hard? Who's God got in your life right now that maybe he's been impressing on your heart to reach out to, but you've been scared to? Maybe they're not naked in their backyard, but maybe they're broken. I can assure you that until you get to know people and their stories, you and I have no idea what people around us are going through. Maybe you're one of those people. Consider yourself. What's your story that people just don't know? Maybe you're a believer today and you're just struggling. And you need somebody to come alongside you and be Jesus to you. Get to know people. We see his compassion, but we also see Jesus' Jesus' authority in this passage, don't we? This gives me encouragement. Because if it was up to me to deal with situations like this, um, sorry, you guys are all on your own. But because it's up to Jesus, we have great hope. Because it's not up to us to make a difference, is it? It's up to God to work through us to make the difference. It's not your strength that carries you. It's the grace of God that carries you. It's not your eloquence and how to present the gospel that changes a soul. It's God working in the heart of that individual through your words to change a soul. And here we see the authority of Jesus. The demons understand very well who Jesus is, don't they? They don't have any question about who's before them. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Satan and his demons know very well what their fates are. In fact, here, if you look, I believe it's in the, the Luke account, they implore Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Their designated spot of damnation for eternity. They know their final fate. They know that Jesus is victorious in the end. And they implore Jesus, don't, don't send us out of the region. Don't send us to the abyss. Why don't you cast us into these swine over here? You might wonder, you know, we're swine. Why are there pigs? Like, weren't Jews against pigs? Remember, it's a Gentile region. Not to say that there weren't Jewish people there, but it's mostly Gentiles. So there's this herd of swine and Jesus gives them permission. And he casts the demons into the swine and they go running over the cliff into the sea. But I want you to see the authority of Jesus here. I want you to see that not only did Jesus have authority over these demons and Jesus has the authority over all things, but Jesus is in ultimate, complete control. In Job chapter 1 and 2, it's not a God versus Satan thing. It's a God using Satan for his glory thing. I know that can disrupt people's theology a little bit, but the reality is, is God is in control. Satan has no sway unless God gives him permission. And they know that their final end is defeat. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says that God did not spare angels when they sinned, 
these fallen angels are probably the demons that now inhabit our world. But he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude chapter, excuse me, chapter 6, Jude 6. Angels who did not keep their domain but abandoned their proper abode is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And if you turn with me real quick to Revelation chapter 20, you see the final end. Folks, Satan is real. Demons are real, but they are also very defeated. Do not underestimate what they can do, but do not underestimate the fact that God has the victory. We should be mindful of them, but we should not be fearful of them. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that Satan roams about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Peter writes it that way to get your attention. But he also wants you to know that the victory comes through Jesus Christ. So stand firm in your faith. And in Revelation chapter 20, we again see the very reality that these demons know is that they are defeated. In verse 1 it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then you jump ahead to verse 10, and you see the final doom of Satan. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus was in complete control. The demons that infested this man were well aware of that. Encourage your hearts with that truth. So after Jesus casts these demons into the herd of swine and they go running over the edge, uh, that got the attention of the people, right? Imagine that was you that day. You're going out to work on your farm and all of a sudden you see 2,000 pigs go running over the edge of a cliff. It's a little weird, especially if they're your pigs. Not, not a good business there, right? I want to look at two different reactions. First, the reaction of the townspeople and secondly, the reaction of the man that's been healed by Jesus. Verse 14, the herdsmen ran away and they reported in the city and in the country and the people came to see what it was that had happened. Um, they didn't have CNN back then. It wasn't playing all over the TVs. They actually made the trek miles and miles to find out what was going on. And they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And then they had a great big worship service. They praised Jesus because they had seen this man, this man that they had bound for years and years in shackles, and seen him break him, run into the desert amongst these tombs, amongst the dead 
And now he's sitting there and he's clothed and he's in his right mind and for the first time in a long time, this man actually seems normal. And they praise Jesus, right? Is that what it says? What's verse 17 say? They implored Jesus to leave. Can you believe it? The reaction of the townspeople, instead of they have this walking, living, breathing miracle in front of them, instead of praising God for this miracle, they're terrified, and they ask Jesus to leave them alone. Try to wrap your brain around that one. Does that make any sense at all? Were they upset that they had just lost a significant prophet? whole lot of bacon just ran over the edge. I'm not convinced that was the problem. The problem stemmed a lot deeper and it began in their hearts. In John chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 it says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There's a part of me that wonders when I read this passage if the reaction of the townspeople was in part because of this. When you and I come face to face with Jesus, he not only shines his grace on our lives, but he reveals truth. And light penetrates darkness. And when that light penetrates, it reveals things about ourselves that we don't like. These townspeople were pretty quick to point the finger at this demoniac. But what they didn't realize is they were just in much in need of Jesus as he was. They didn't wake up that morning and look in the mirror and realize that they were a sinner in need of grace too. Ladies and gentlemen, as you and I go out to our respective places tomorrow, I challenge you to look in the mirror and remind yourself that you are a sinner saved by grace. So when you deal with that ornery boss that drives you nuts and you just are at your wit's end, you're going to look at him or her a little bit differently. Or that neighbor who plays his music too loud at night or the one whose children don't quite match the perfect family that you would envision them living next door. Or maybe it's that relative, the one that you wish would just get it. Because they're just, they just don't fit. You love them, but man, you love it when they're not around too. We all need the grace of Jesus. These townspeople didn't realize that. It's interesting to me that there was one man that got it and there was a whole town that missed it. Do you ever feel like that way in ministry? God gives you the joy of seeing one person get it and then you look there and you're like, man, Lord, what, what is wrong with the hearts of these people? Maybe you've been sharing the gospel with this one person over and over again and it's just not clicking. There was a whole town that missed the point here. Instead of worshiping Jesus, they were, they were requesting that he leave. 
They were imploring him, urging him, just, just leave us alone. We don't want what you have to offer. And yet sitting before them was this man that they knew was a miracle. And they still didn't get it. Folks, we're not charged to change the heart of men. But we are commissioned to share the gospel of Jesus with their hearts. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 4 verse 6, I planted Apollos water, but it's who causes the growth? God. So if you're discouraged because you have been reaching out to people, don't be discouraged because God's the one that's going to do the work. Somebody once said the old proverb, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force him to drink. It's kind of true with the gospel. We're called to share. We can't make them drink. We can offer. And shame on us if we don't. But even Jesus was rejected. But are we reaching out? The second reaction is the reaction of the demoniac. What was life like for him now? Um, we didn't mention it earlier, but if you do look at the Matthew account, it mentions that there were two demoniacs. Again, some people would kind of create an issue over that. It's not that big a deal. I think there were probably two. I just think Matthew wanted to talk about two, and Luke and Mark talked about one, probably the most prominent of the two. It's more a, not an issue of an error, but more of an issue of omission, in my opinion. But what what was the response of this man? Verse 18, <clears throat> excuse me, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him. Here in verse 17, we have the townspeople imploring Jesus to leave. And here in verse 18, we have the contrast of the man imploring Jesus to let him come with him. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Jesus, I want to go wherever you're going. I want to be with you. I want to sit at your feet. I want to learn from you. This guy got it. He had his Savior before him. But look at what Jesus' response to him was. Jesus did not let him. He told him no. Go home instead to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. Instead of following me, I want you instead to go back to your people. The, the, the hundreds or thousands of people that just rejected me and asked me to leave, you're going to go back to them. You're going to be a missionary in your own hometown. You're going to go to this people and you're going to tell them exactly what God's done for you. And you're going to share your story with people over and over. And they're going to marvel because they, you are a living, walking testimony of what Jesus can do to somebody. How Jesus can change life. And you're going to be a walking picture of hope. I want you to go and tell them the great things that God has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. When was the last time you shared your testimony with somebody? If you are, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have, you're a living, walking miracle. You might not be, might not have a story like the demoniac. That's really good. And that might make the, the papers. Yours might not. But you're no less a miracle than this man. 
And God has put you in the lives of people all around you, and He wants you to go and tell people about the great things that God has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. When was the last time you did that? Sometimes our argument is, Lord, I'm, we're, we're like Moses. Lord, I'm just not eloquent. I can't speak. If you send, if you send my, my brother in Christ, Don Carrier, that guy can speak. He can share Jesus with my friends. He says, no. I got you in their lives. I want you to do it. Folks, if you have come to know Jesus as your Savior, you know enough to share somebody. It's not about eloquence. It's about your heart. It's not about being able to give them the five points of the gospel. It's about telling them the simple facts of how Jesus saved you. This man was sent to share his testimony. In verse 20 it says, He went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. That's a pretty cool story. There are people all around us that you rub elbows with. There are going to be people that you meet today that maybe God has placed you in their life for a specific reason. You might not have a clue who they are. Those are the exciting ones. Are you open to sharing the hope of Jesus with them? Maybe when you're standing in the grocery aisle today, it's going to be the person next to you. God has divine appointments for us every single day. Every day. One of my prayers every day I go to work is, Lord, show me how you want to use me today. Help me to be in tune with your spirit. And I just wait to see what's going to happen. And some days there's something really cool that happens and some days there's something really challenging that happens. But it's exciting. Living for Jesus should just enthrall your soul. Every day is an adventure. And I'm not by any means a perfect individual. But I can tell you that Jesus, man, when he works... There's nothing more exciting in life than that. You open yourself up for some tough stuff sometimes when you do that. And that's why we don't do it. You think it was comfortable for the disciples to be there? They watched Jesus do this? But do you think it was comfortable for them? Not any more than me going to jail has been comfortable at times. But I can assure you that it's not... It's a it's not anything I would ever change. I've seen God use it in hindsight in ways that I never would have imagined He would use it in my life. The opportunities He's given me to share a hope with people that have no hope. I am amazed at the number of people in our society today that have no comprehension at all of who Jesus is. And that's not a joke. I deal with generations of people in jail and I can tell you that they have no concept of who Jesus is. And there is another large percentage of them that they have a concept of who Jesus is 
and it's very, very wrong. This is where we come in. God has blessed us with a message. The Great Commission says what? As you are going. It says go, I know, in most English translations, but it's as you are going. It's everyday living, everyday walking. As you are going out, I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to make Jesus followers. And the great part about that challenge at the end of it, what is Jesus' promise there? I'm sending you out to deal with these people by yourself? What? I'm going with you. And I'm with you to the very end. It's okay to be scared. But it's not okay to let your fear keep you from doing what God has called you to do. Fear is something that God can work with. That just means that we rely on Him all the more. I think fear is a gift from God sometimes. I know I'm not trying to be a theological heretic. I know we're not supposed to fear, but I can tell you in my own life, fear makes me rely on God more. He uses my sin, my fearfulness, to lean on Him. So if you're afraid, join me. Let's see what God can do. Because this isn't a fictional tale, folks. This is real life. And there's a world of people out there that aren't a whole lot different than this man. D.L. Moody said, I look upon the world as a wrecked vessel. It's ruined coming nearer and nearer. And God has given me a lifeboat. And said to me, Moody, save all that you can. God has given me a lifeboat. And he said, Moody, save all that you can. The Apostle Paul put it this way, We are ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.18, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You are God's spokesperson for Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is a reason to worship. There are people in bondage all around us. And you and I have been given the key help set them free. Lord, man, we are works in progress. Uh, Lord, I, I don't stand up here today as somebody that has arrived or has it all together. But Lord, I can just testify to the fact that you can take uh, a coward like me, somebody that's fearful and weak and broken myself. And you can work in my heart and you can change my heart. And Lord, you can use me to be a light to others as you shine through. God, that's what you've called your church to be. We are your ambassadors. We are that light on a hill that are supposed to point to the hope of Jesus Christ in a world that, Lord, is dark and in need of a Savior. God, help us to see people with your heart of compassion. God, so many of us, we know the right thing to do, and we have the right answers, and we could, we could spout off the Roman road in less than five seconds. But God, we need your help to live it. 
Lord, transform us. Help us to be a light to you, even today, God. Help us to share the hope that we have. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.